Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is uh, Sunday, uh, October the 9th, uh, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for uh, tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. Uh, later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches uh, on uh, the election results uh, from the Kingdom of Lesotho, uh, where the newly formed Revolution for Prosperity Party has taken a strong lead in the results. The military leaders of Burkina Faso have announced a transitional charter uh, process, which will unfold in the coming months. Solidarity between Ghana and Ethiopia has been highlighted at an event held in Addis Ababa over the weekend. And the Greek foreign minister has arrived in Egypt to discuss the role of Turkey in the ongoing Libya crisis. In the second hour, we look in depth uh, at the elections in Lesotho uh, with analysts on the ground inside uh, this Southern African state. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa is launching a renewal campaign to enhance electoral support for the ruling African National Congress. Also, we hear a speech uh, delivered by President Ramaphosa to the South African Democratic Teachers Union. Finally, we review a briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, that is based in uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, these and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, uh, so stay tuned. And uh, we're going to uh, take our musical interlude, and of course, uh, we're going to listen uh, to some excellent uh, music, uh, music from uh, the group uh, Zaiko Langa Langa. This uh, is music uh, from uh, the uh, Central Africa, uh, music, of course, that is considered classical, uh, music within the uh, African uh, context. Yes, let's listen in to uh, the Langa Langa. Let's listen in to the Langa Langa Stars, uh, which is also an offshoot of uh, Zyko Langa Langa. And, of course, uh, this music is brought to you on a weekly basis. Uh, right here at uh, the Pan-African Journal. Let's listen in. Bako matale la pelo, bako kita nyangobo 
na vinanga ya sikae komo na yedalida ndoia mama
Welcome back. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, this special edition of our program. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Adikwe. And uh, today uh, is uh, Sunday, uh, October the 9th. 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, we'd like to move right now into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program, and we just heard the music of the Longer Longer Stars uh, from the album entitled Nikombe. Our lead story in the Pan-African Newswire for today, and these are some of the headlines from the Pan-African Newswire. Sam Matikani, Lesotho's leader of the Revolution for Prosperity Party, joined supporters earlier today in the capital of Masuru to rejoice over an early lead in the parliamentary race. The Independent Electoral Commission has indeed started unveiling provisional results. The 64-year-old man, who believed to be the country's wealthiest person, was considered a dark horse in this election. Our young people, I want to thank you for making choice and showing that you are the people who want to take responsibility, uh, Matikani uh, told a young audience. The main challenges in the polls included the All-Basutu Convention Party and the Democratic Congress Party. About 1.5 million people were registered and cast their ballot on Friday, uh, October the 7th, and chose a candidate of the more than 50 competing parties. Turnout in the last elections in 2017 2017 was only 47%, but some observers said the figure could be higher this year. Final results will be announced uh, very soon. In the West African state of Burkina Faso, uh, Burkina Faso's uh, coup leader, Captain Ibrahim Traore, will convene a so-called National Assembly on October the 14th and the 15th this coming week to appoint a transition leader. Uh, for a transition charter and most likely a new transitional president. The announcement uh, came uh, yesterday after a decree was read on state television. The assembly talks are set to take place in Ouagadougou, the capital. It is on that occasion that the transitional charter, which will set out the steps to be taken by the countries towards the convocation of elections, will be ratified. According to the local radio station, Omega, the meeting uh, will gather actors, including uh, civil society organizations and political personalities. The hottest uh, militants have killed thousands and forced two million to flee their homes uh, since 2015. Despite military operations, attacks increased since mid-March and continue to plunge many families into mourning. Terrorism is making things difficult for the Borkinabi people. The uncle of a slain soldier laments. We are with the new president, and we pray that God assist him. And also, we're looking for equipment and personnel so that we get out of this. If not, a lot of our children will die. Uh, Mumuni Zundi uh, alerts. Uh, he was on. He was uh, on one of the mourners attending Saturday, uh, the funeral of 27 soldiers who were slain in an ambush on September the 26th. Captain Ibrahim Traore also attended the funeral. The 27 soldiers were part of a supply convoy of more than 200 trucks heading to the town of Jibo, capital of the northern Sahel region, when they were attacked. In addition to them, at least 10 civilians died. Others are still unaccounted for. 
The al-Qaeda terrorist group uh, claimed responsibility for the attack. Uh, this military setback is seen as the catalyst for the second coup. Shortly after ascending to power, uh, junta leader Traore argued soldiers lacked the basic logistics under his predecessor, Damiba. It remains to be seen if he can turn around the crisis. Listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal, Ethiopia and Ghana have had strong friendship uh, since the establishment of the African Union. That's according to Minister of Mines and Petroleum, uh, Takli Uma. <clears throat> the Minister of Mines was the guest of honor at the Ethiopian and Ghana Fraternity Night organized by the Embassy of Ghana in Ethiopia. In his remarks, uh, Minister Takele Uma pointed out that the Pan-Africanism spirit uh, that enabled Ethiopia and Ghana to establish the African Union has further strengthened the bilateral relationship and made it possible to work closely and jointly on African issues. Mrs. Ama A. Tuum Amoa, ambassador of Ghana and Ethiopia, said that the two countries have made a significant contribution to the independence of African countries and the strengthening of the African Union. Ghana, like Ethiopia, is known to possess natural mineral wealth. The ambassador said, adding that it is achieving strong results in terms of health systems, economic growth, and human development. Akilu Tadasi, head of the Youth Affairs of, of the Center for Democracy, building at the office of the Prime Minister and Secretary of the National Committee, said that the early leaders of Ethiopia, Emperor Haile Selassie, and Ghana's President Kwame Nkrumah played a leading role in the realization of Pan-Africanism and the establishment of African institutions. He said that the historical and political relationship between Ethiopia and Ghana has achieved victory in the anti-colonialism movement and the issues of African fraternity. And finally, in the North African state of Egypt, Egypt's foreign minister uh, and Greece's foreign minister met earlier today in Cairo following controversial maritime and gas deals that their, that their shared rival Turkey signed with a Libyan leader. That's what officials said in Cairo. Cairo and Athens have strengthened ties in recent years, including cooperation in developing energy resources, combating terrorism, and signing new maritime border agreements with Cyprus. At a joint news conference, Foreign Minister Nikos Dindias said talks with his Egyptian counterpart, Sami Shukri, focused on the memorandums of understanding between Turkey and Abdul Hamid Beba, the leader of one of two competing governments in divided Libya. He said such agreements were a threat to regional stability. The deals signed last week in the Libyan capital of Tripoli include the joint exploration of hydrocarbon reserves in Libya's offshore waters and national territory. Sindias slammed the deals as illegal, saying they infringed on Greek waters. Turkey seeks to take advantage of the turbulent situation in Libya in order to further destabilize the Mediterranean region and establish regional hegemony. He said, no one can ignore geography. No one can create a virtual world. The Egyptian foreign minister, meanwhile, said Beba government has no authority to conclude such deals, given that its mandate expired following Libya's failure to hold nationwide elections in December of last year. He called for the United Nations to take a clear position on the legitimacy of the Beba's government, uh, saying the international body should not keep silent. Zendayas uh, said the two ministers also discussed developments in the Aegean Sea in reference to the tensions with Turkey over the alleged deployment of dozens of U.S.-made armored vehicles 
by Greece uh, to the Aegean islands of Samos and Lesbos. There were no immediate comments from Turkey or Beba's government. Libya has been mired in chaos since the NATO-backed counter-revolution toppled and killed longtime statesman and Pan-Africanist Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligence discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to uh, have access to today's uh, program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, Sunday, uh, October the 9th, uh, 2022. Uh, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com uh, forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, you can... Uh, not only have access to today's program, but well over 1,100 other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Autumn in New York. Why does it seem so inviting? Autumn in New Bells the thrill of first nighting Glittering crowds and shimmering clouds And canyons of steel They're making me feel
in New York It lifts you up when you're let down Jaded Ruey and gay divorcee Who lunch at the Ritz Will tell you that it's divine. This autumn in New York transforms the slums into make fair. Autumn in New York. You'll need no castle in Spain Lovers that bless the dark On benches in Central Park Greet autumn in New York It's good to live in Welcome back, and uh, the voice of uh, Billy Holiday with the track entitled Autumn in New York, and it is Autumn in the United States, and uh, we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, this special worldwide radio broadcast. And uh, as we mentioned uh, in the uh, Pan-African Newswire segment, uh, national elections uh, took place on Friday in uh, Lesotho in Southern Africa, a member of the Southern African Development Community. The uh, country, uh, of course, uh, is one uh, that has, of course, had a tremendous history in regard to uh, African developments uh, from the 18th century all the way uh, to modern times. And uh, the elections, uh, we're going to hear a report. Uh, we've been covering the elections uh, over the Pan-African Newswire, and we also, in our previous Pan-African Journal program, had a report. Uh, we're going to do an update on the elections uh, that uh, was held Friday, and um, tabulations are continuing in uh, Lesotho. The Lesotho IEC is at the 50% mark of the counting process. While the newly formed party has performed exceptionally well, the 60 plus 1, a simple majority, might be a tall mountain to climb. Foreign and local observers have issued statements commending the peaceful, free and fair election process. Our reporter Rapalang Khadebe is on the ground following the counting process for us, and he joins us now live. Rapalang, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Well, it looks like there's going to be a change of government in Lesotho, with many saying, of course, that the Revolution for Prosperity Party is taking the hearts of the people. Most definitely, and as we speak now, sitting at around 50% mark, Right here is the convention center where it's a short break and immediately afterwards I think we will probably know what will happen exactly as to whether the, the RFP Revolution for Prosperity can actually do government on their own. They are anticipating 
5861, you need 60 plus one majority for you to actually have that 50% mark, which is uh, half of 120 allocated seats. But yes, to answer your question, definitely, it looks like there is winds of change that is coming. RSP has won the hearts of people. It is likely going from government. Uh, talk to us about what the people on the ground are actually saying. I mean, we do know that foreign and local observers that are in the country have already said that, you know, they're commending the process, saying that it was peaceful, it was free, and it was a fair election. Yeah, look, it's mixed feelings. This has sent shockwaves to the traditional parties that have been in power uh, since independence. These are new players who formed the party hardly four or five months ago, and they went vigorously into this election with an intention of winning. And we sort of anticipated a very strong show, but for them to have reached right now very close to being a government on their own is unheard of. You will know since 2012, Lesotho has been under coalition governments, which have been rather, rather unstable. So, yes, you do mix a whole mix of people, uh, some jovial celebrating, uh, others completely shocked and disappointed of how it went. But I think what we can take from the leaders is those who have actually sent the messages to their supporters to sort of appreciate and accept that there's probably a new mandate that has been given to different people and should be ready to accept to be on the cross benches or on opposition when it goes to Palace. I know you're saying that officials will be giving you an update soon. Uh, how likely would you know, you know some of the information, particularly when we can expect the final results uh, to come out? Yes, the truth is IEC has been doing a steady, sterling job. I was just talking to some of the officials and saying they are trying to push as much as possible. Uh, the determining point is whether they can announce beyond the halfway mark, because that is when we all now start taking our calculators, because the determining factor is going to be that proportional representation, which now factors a whole lot of things, uh, depending on the number of votes, the things that have been acquired. Uh, but we are hoping that by tonight, or the end of today's session, we will have a much clearer picture as to who is likely going to form government and with whom. We believe that by tomorrow, things all going well without any major dispute, uh, if you should be in a position to complete the task. It looks like they have done a sterling job with speed. Uh, it seems like we're losing you uh, there, Rapalang, but before I let you go, very quickly, have you managed to talk to officials um, you know, of the current ruling um, ABC and perhaps even the, um, the Democratic Congress? Very hard to reach either of them. I think it's troubling times. They are trying to comfort their, their, their followers and supporters. Uh, the person I was able to talk to is the um, Secretary General of the new RFP. Uh, usually, the convention center or the result center is always awash, filled with supporters from various parties. But I think with the shape that this year's elections has taken, a lot of them decided to stay or went 
to their supporters maybe to go and try and give them messages of comfort. So yes, none of them are easily reachable. Uh, none of them have come to the convention center at least for today. Uh, so we are, it, it's a bit of a different kind of election this year. Rapalang, let's leave it there for now. Thank you so much for your time. Of course, our reporter there, Rapalang Khadebe, coming to us live from Lesotho, the Lesotho IEC, saying there it is at the 50% mark of the counting process. And uh, that was a report uh, from Maseru, the capital of uh, Lesotho, on uh, the results uh, that are coming in uh, from the national elections held on Friday. Uh, the Revolution uh, for Prosperity Party uh, has taken an overwhelming lead in the count. And uh, here's an additional report uh, from uh, the same uh, correspondent, uh, Rapilong Radebe. The Sutu's election results are coming in fast, with 50% of the votes counted, while the newly formed Revolution for Prosperity Party, formed by Sam Matakane, has performed exceptionally well. The 60-plus-1 majority mark may be a tall mountain to climb. Foreign and local observers have commended the country on peaceful, free and fair elections. Let's talk now to our correspondent in Lesotho, Rapelang Khadebe. Rapelang, good evening to you and welcome. Give us a short wrap of the day's big developments. Indeed, the tough part has come and gone, uh, but it is at that margin where everything is like at the nice edge. You have the RFP that is so close to power, but they about a few seats that they might be short of and might have to consider a coalition perhaps for them not to be able to have that outright majority. Uh, right now, the convention center, the results center, is just left with about 20 constituencies. They are at 60 out of 80 constituencies. And from there, this is where now the negotiations of the compensatory vote, because Lesotho has 120 seats, 80 can be from constituencies, but the 40 are now compensatory seats uh, based on the proportional and the performance of each party. So that is where now the real staffle will begin. But it looks like RFP has performed, performed exceptionally well uh, with what looks like a protesting vote ousting the traditional big parties that have been in power for this law. But they cannot be ruled out because they still have a very good and powerful opposition should things go as they look for. Well, let's uh, delve a little bit deeper into um, the revolution for prosperity. Uh, uh, what has driven its popularity? I think a group of slightly fed up businessmen decided to take matters into their hands. They sold the idea mostly to the young people, and they went very vigorously. Look, they have slightly deep pockets, and they were able to really convince by showing and said, if this country falls apart, we shall, we shall also be blamed. And they therefore decided that unless we take matters into our hands and take in charge, of our country. And it looks like that has sold, and they are now looking forward. If you look at how Basutu voted, it looks like really their message has gone through. 
So share with us what's, um, and, and, and that's quite interesting and, and exciting to know. So there is, uh, one would say, some, some young energy that's driving that agenda because you want to return to a, a situation where the job prospects are, are heightened and young people feel like they have a future in their own country. Tell us a little bit more about the opposition and how the evening uh, is expected to play out. Absolutely. Under normal circumstances, this place was supposed to be a hype of action with celebrities, with hooters. But it looks like things have gone slightly different because it looked like a clear outside majority, but it didn't quite pan out that way, looking at the circumstances that have prevailed. What you're asking for is that I think the young people being tired, ABC came into power uh, with a talk for change, very strong message, taking matters into their hands, ending poverty at levels that I think the disappointment could really uh, show in the way the protest vote that you see, because it has been almost really cleaned out. If you look at the numbers that they got in their constituencies, even some of the leaders not making it into those constituencies that they had control of. So you can tell that this is a constituency that when people decide they can turn, turn around, you can never rely that you have them under your control or under your spell. So they are the ones who say, we give you five years. If you don't do what you promised, we have that power to change that vote. And for this time, that vote was exercised. Yeah, I want to ask you a, a final question, which I, I asked one of our analysts yesterday. You know, this sincerity uh, that seems to be in the atmosphere to honor the vote, to respect the results of the polls. Um, and, you know, I, I'd like for you to talk a little bit of, uh, more about that. You're witnessing it firsthand. Um, and, you know, about whether Lesotho might be on the cusp of a new and stable future. I, I would really doubt. If just the atmosphere itself is relaxed, it's calm. You listen to the radio stations, which usually will give you a good indication, and if you go to social media, there is a relative mood of acceptance, accepting that the people have decided. And they are simply saying, you still have five years if you think you can still do something. You have five years to change the status quo. So I would want to think we would have picked up if there would be any indication of anyone not happy with the outcome or the result, or even wanting to protest. But I think people are saying, we will battle it out in Parliament. We will air our views in Parliament. We ask tough questions to the Sadak Observer Mission this afternoon and saying, what is your input when you make recommendations and edges and they are not implemented? And immediately, I think they came to the party and said, right now we have driven things up this far, we are not going to leave the cities simply because they were not able to implement the omnibus bill which would bring about the reforms. They said immediately after this election, we will be sending the observer mission to Lesotho. That will ensure that the same pace and momentum is existing such that the reforms are implemented because it is the wish of Basotho. They are the ones who requested those reforms. Mm. Really interesting times and a lot to look forward to over the course of tonight and the next few days. Our correspondent in Lesotho, Rapelang Khadebe. And uh, that was an update on the Lesotho elections.
And uh, we're going to continue to follow uh, this story uh, over the Pan-African Newswire, which you can log on to at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. Now we're going to switch to a neighboring Republic of South Africa and uh, the African National Congress president, who is also state president, Cyril Ramaphosa, has launched uh, a campaign, a Lexima campaign, uh, which is designed to renew uh, the electoral uh, base of the African National Congress that has been launched over the last several days. Let's listen to this report on the uh, Letsema campaign in South Africa. Now, let's go to this. The ANC's Letsema campaign is in the Free State today, and President Cyril Ramaphosa and other party leaders are are there to visit Valcom to hear about service delivery issues there. The Free State remains a deeply divided province for the ANC, with the province still struggling to get its provincial conference off the ground. ENCA senior reporter Sipa Mandelagorke is there. He's covering the story for us. Sipa, has the president arrived, if you can hear me? Um, and you also, earlier, you spoke to the water and sanitation minister, Senzo Mkunu. Um, what is he saying about the water challenges in that specific province? Oh, Indeed, like... the president of the ANC, Sir Ramaphosa, yeah, has arrived in Velcom and is busy visiting a number of uh, uh, areas in the area. He is at the local clinic right now, being briefed by one of the sisters at this newly built clinic in the area. Let's take a listen before we proceed. It was uh, leaking, with a leaking roof. Everything was Today we are going from 130 to 150 sometimes, but because of that uh, CCMD program, we, are, we have detected more patients outside. Now we are standing between 100 and 150 per day. So you refer patients to other? No, we yes, we do refer the patients to other facilities like the acute sick people who need the uh, urgent medical attention. We send them to Wangani Regional Hospital for uh, doctors there. And then for the maternity also, we send them to our district uh, hospital, which is Takeho. And then those who are high risk, we send them to Wangani Hospital. This is so, a good facility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, with all many nurses, do you have? At the moment, I'm having four professional nurses. But because the COVID professional nurses are now not utilized for the COVID, they've been uh, placed into the facility. So I have a I'm having one personal doctor who is coming every Monday. But, but, but this is not the only clinic that was facing in the 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 in we are also doing the same with the tradition. So in the district, how many clinics would you have in the end? Um, in the district, we have almost uh, 16, 16 clinics. 16? Yes. We've got more than 200 clinics in the, in the province. 
So you don't tell me you've got 60 clinics there, Pemia? Yes, we do. Uh, wow. I guess we have just recently launched uh, Operation Petisa. Yes. We are just from the local government uh, election, yes. and people were saying, please make sure that the Petisa, what we have promised us. Yes. And they were also uh, complaining about their clinic facilities. Mm -hmm. That is why we have launched Operation Petisa. In fact, Petisa, what we have promised What you people. promised? Yes. You have 32 hospitals. Wow, that's not so bad. I saw one that they are repairing as well, the other side, so I can vouch for it. You can vouch for it? Yes, <laughs> I touched it actually. That's phenomenal. In a district to have how many? ANC President Sir Ramaphosa being briefed there about the state of uh, health in the district and in the province. The local representative telling him that in this district alone they've got more than 60 local clinics and across the Free State province they've got more than 200 facilities that the briefing has been given here as he's touring this newly revamped uh, health facility here in Welcome. Many residents have been complaining about the issue of sewerage in the area, the issue of gravel roads, potholes. They are saying the president must do something and this Lithima campaign visit is aimed at dealing with issues of service delivery. After visiting a number of areas in Welcome, he will then address ANC structures and talk politics in one of the hotly contested provinces, that is the free state that has not convened its provincial conference. It's anticipated that they will convene it towards the end of October. It remains to be seen whether that will happen or not. It's been postponed on a number of occasions. ANC President Sir Ramaphosa coming back to the Free State for the second time for the Letsima campaign. He launched it in Mangaung in Bloemfontein and today he's back here in Welcome, the second biggest municipality in this province of the Free State that is plagued by serious service delivery challenges, something that the president of the ANC, Sir Ramaphosa, says they will be addressing in dealing with that. And uh, after this, he will, of course, be visiting uh, some community members to listen to their grievances. But those that he has visited, they have been unhappy with the issue of sewerage, with the issue of gravel roads. It appears that some of the gravel roads were only prepared for the arrival of the president. And local residents have been complaining about the state of the local municipality in the area and lack of basic services. I'm not sure if you are still with us, but if you can hear us, let me just continue and tell you that in uh, exactly two minutes or a minute we expect to have a quick doorstop with ANC President Sir Ramaphosa. We will have to interview him, ask him a number of questions and clarity issues that he will need to clarify, not only related to the Lesima campaign and his visit here, but also other pressing ANC issues and the ANC politics. So let's just walk, uh, see if we can get in front. 
will try by all means to be ahead of the president. We will have to stop him. Let's wait for him to get through, and then let's see. Okay, uh, we we are ready for the interview with the president. Can I just quickly sneak it here? Can I sneak it here? Okay. So, sorry about that. It's fine. Okay, I'll be here. Okay. So. So, President, how are you? I'm good, Mr. President. Good to see you. It's good to see you too. Always good to see you. It's good to see you. And you too. Yeah. Very well, how are you? You are here on the program of the ANC. Of course, you've had the end of the three statements. You also Yes, uh, well I'm here on, <clears throat> on the Lesema program and interacting with our, the provincial leaders and the local leaders and uh, examining how strong our structures are, but more importantly just focusing on their ability and their strength in relation to what we need to do to reconnect with our people because structures of the ANC need to be revived, strong, so that they can lead the process of providing good service to our people. And I'm really uh, elated to realize that both at provincial level, at uh, regional level and at branch level, uh, the ANC is coming alive. Also in this province, which was hugely challenged in the past, we can see that the Litsima program uh, is really coming into its own and people are focusing on strengthening the branches of the ANC and making sure that they are not only ready for conferences but ready to serve our people. Uh, the province should be going to a conference soon and uh, through that we will be able to lift the revival of the branches of the ANC. So this is a very important program for me uh, because uh, it's part of the renewal process that we are involved in in the ANC to reinvigorate our branches and make sure that our people uh, reconnect with the ANC. Mr. President, is it true that you recently appeared before the Integrity Commission where you asked to take special leave or resign? What was the outcome? But also, moving forward, maybe can we get your comment on former President Jacob Zuma and his sentence expiring? What is your comment on that one? And he is said to be eager to be contesting for the position of National Chairperson at the December conference. Yes, I did appear before the Integrity Commission and uh, it was a very good engagement and I had an opportunity to explain to them about the whole issue of Parapara. Uh, they have not given me an outcome, they didn't uh, tell me uh, in those terms what to do. They said, well, uh, they are going to uh, go through a process themselves as an integrity commission. But uh, we were all very pleased with the engagement. Now, uh, of course, all of us are relieved and are pleased that uh, uh, former President Jacob Zuma's uh, connection with the prison services is over. Uh, the 15 months is over. 
and that, as I've heard, has brought a great deal of relief on him, but so does it do on us as the ANC, so we are very pleased that that chapter is behind us, and now we can move forward. And like any other uh, member of the ANC, uh, former President Jacob Zuma can, can uh, stand for any position, but I would say, you know, at 80 years, uh, that's uh, another uh, issue that one needs to look at. Uh, because at 80 years, uh, you are rather advanced in your years, and uh, the, the, the key role should be that of being an elder, uh, giving advice to the ANC, uh, that would be a wonderful role. On Litsima, Mr. President, sewerage all over, welcome, gravel roads, surely looking at the state of infrastructure, sanitation infrastructure, local residents are not pleased with what is happening. They have been complaining about sewerage for a very long time. Very pleased. Yeah, no, no, no. On the sewerage issue, uh, the new mayor uh, in uh, uh, this uh, municipality has focused from day one on how we can reposition Welcome, and he's targeted the issue of sewer, uh, the issue of uh, public infrastructure which has been destroyed, and all that is now being attended to. And the pleasing thing is that he has engaged even national departments. The Minister of Water and Sanitation, Minister Mkulu, has been here and is supporting the work that should be done. The Minister of Transport is also has been here as well. So a lot is beginning to happen, and a lot of incidents of corruption are being brought to an end, and there's just a new spirit uh, that has emerged in this municipality. Thank you very much. Well, the issue of ESCOM, obviously, it's a relief to all of us that uh, load shedding uh, has tapered down or has more or less come to an end. Uh, and we are continuing to address the issue of ESCOM. We are paying a lot of attention to it. And the new board is going to do the same and the executive management is going to do the same. And uh, we will continue uh, strengthening ESCOM moving forward. I'm hoping that we will keep the light on. Thank you. ANC President Sir Ramaphosa on a number of issues there, including him confirming to have appeared before the Integrity Commission of the ANC over Palapala. He says, well, they did not give him an outcome. We'll have to find out from the Integrity Commission when they hope to conclude that matter over Palapala. From here, ANC President Sir Ramaphosa will be engaging with a number of ANC structures, including addressing them earlier as Joko Mane is showing you the visuals of uh, the President of the ANC leaving after inspecting one of the newly refurbished uh, local clinics in Welcome. Issues of sewage, water, potholes, gravel roads that are not fixed, even though ANC spokesperson Pulema is adamant that they are fixed all the time. Local residents disagree with him. So from here, we are off to the next stop whereby the President of the ANC will address other structures of the governing party. So we will bring you that address of the ANC president when he talks to ANC structures later on. Of course, you'll have to talk issues of politics. The ANC in the free state has not convened its equally awaited provincial conference.
Thank you so much, um, Sipa Mandla. Uh, they're in uh, welcoming the Free State, of course, the Latima campaign. Um, President Sol Ramaphosa paying a visit there um, and listening to some of the, the leaders in the province and engaging with them. Um, but of course, interestingly enough, you also mentioned, apart from the, the Palapala and, and facing the Integrity Committee, um, not really an outcome there, like Sipa Mandla just said, but also um, it was quite funny to, to me, at least, um, when he spoke about uh, former President Jacob Zuma being 80 years old and basically saying that um, he should rest now and not take up any other leadership roles within the ANC. And uh, that was uh, a glimpse at the Latsima campaign uh, that uh, the After National Congress has launched. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, we're going to continue to follow this. In addition, uh, uh, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa um, delivered a policy address at the South African Democratic Teachers Union Congress uh, just a few days ago. Uh, Scott Du uh, is uh, one of the leading, uh, the leading um, trade union uh, representing educators uh, in the Republic of South Africa. It is part of the Congress of South African Trade Unions, uh, which is part of the uh, tripartite alliance of the African National Congress, the South African Communist Party, and uh, the Congress of South African uh, Trade Unions, along with the uh, South African National Civic Organizations, etc. Uh, let's um, listen uh, to uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa's address to the South African Democratic Teachers Union just uh, several days ago. Manda! Viva Satu Viva! Viva. Viva Kosatu Viva. Viva. Viva SACP Viva. Viva. Viva ANC Viva. Viva. Amanda. Thank you very much. I extend my greetings to you, Program Director, General Secretary Maluleke. I also extend my greetings to the President of SATU, Comrade Mapila, the General Secretary of COSATU, Comrade Soli, Petwe, and the First General Secretary of the Party, Comrade Madala Masuku. And I also extend my greetings to the ministers who are here and all the national office bearers of SATU and all other leaders of various other formations who are also here. Comrades and friends, I believe I am here as president of the ANC, not as your employer. <laughs> I think it's important to make that distinction. Uh, I am truly honored uh, to have been invited to once again to this National General Council of SATU, an important structure of your union as well as an important structure in the trade union movement and our federation COSATU. Tomorrow, the 5th of October, we will mark World Teachers Day 
When we should, all of us as the world, reflect on and celebrate the role that is played by teachers throughout the world in advancing human progress. Teachers are responsible for the development of any country's most valuable resource, its children. More than any mineral or natural asset, more than any products or industry, the children of our country and the children of the world indeed always shape the futures of those countries and our country indeed, and in our case determine our country's fortunes. That places a great responsibility on teachers to educate and to prepare our children well because the teacher's role goes way beyond just merely teaching. Teachers are more than an educator. They are counselors. They are mentors. They are also role models. But they are also the external parents to any student or any learner. Once a child is admitted to school, the role of a teacher shapes the life of that child, and that process begins. Teachers play a crucial role in our life to succeed in our careers, in our jobs, in business, the role that we can play in the economy, and in short, they play a role in making all of us successful human beings. That is your role as teachers. A good teacher helps learners to become good human beings in society and good citizens of their country. Because teachers know that students or learners are the future of their countries. Let us know what is the importance of teachers in a student's life. Now I know that as members of SATU, you know what role you play in the lives of our children. Because a child is like a piece of clay that teachers can shape in any form. Whatever a child learns is from their parents and after them is from yourselves as their teachers. Because teachers provide them education and knowledge. Teachers are equally important in any student's life. They become an encouraging factor they boost their confidence and they become moral supporters for students. I will want to touch on another aspect where you, and I've said this before in the presence of Minister of Basic Education, about the role that teachers should have 
as we face another major challenge, which could also be classified as a pandemic. Your overriding role, therefore, goes just beyond being just a teacher in the classroom. But your role also places a huge responsibility on the rest of society to support, to respect, to affirm, and to celebrate you as teachers. This NGC takes place at an important time for our country, for our education system, and for the teaching profession as well. While COVID-19 has severely tested the capacity of the state and the resilience of our people, it has also required us to craft new ways of doing things and has also opened up new pathways to progress. The economic and social impact of the pandemic has been devastating, significantly worsening the country's employment crisis, where we lost two million jobs in just one year. To address the challenge of youth unemployment while the economy recovers, we established the Presidential Employment Stimulus to provide work, livelihood opportunities, mainly to the unemployed. This initiative has, not, has now reached more than one million participants, as I said in my weekly letter. More than 60% of these participants are women, and more than 80% of them are young people. Alongside the creation of these opportunities, the Presidential Employment Stimulus has also been making a difference in several areas of development. One of the most significant areas of impact has been in our schools. In the largest program supported by the stimulus, over 600,000 young people have been placed as school assistants in over 22,000 schools. This has been the largest program that has taken place in just one period in the history of our country. The reports we have received from school management, reports I've also received from Minister Mutsaka, reports that we've received from many of you as teachers, and other stakeholders have said that these school assistants have made a positive contribution to the learning environment in our schools. Now there are others who always want to look at the dark side of life, who have dismissed this initiative and have said, could you say that somebody has had a job when you, when you employ them in your garden for a day. Now that is the most stupid analysis I have ever had. 
and that came from a politician from one of the parties. Without understanding the impact that many of you have felt about these assistants who came into your schools during the period of COVID. Now I applaud those young people who bravely took up the task to come and work alongside yourselves and who gave you assistance, who gave you support, and who you were able to delegate a number of tasks to. And these young people have been at it for a year or so, and they've learned valuable skills. Not only have these young people been capacitated themselves and empowered and given meaningful work experience, but many of them have also discovered a passion for teaching and aim to study further. And indeed, a number of them have already enrolled to study your profession further at a number of institutions. And I think we should applaud those young people for what they have done. Now, we appreciate SATU's co continued support for this program and would appreciate your union's view on how to improve the reach and the impact of this initiative. And a number of you have even said, much as it was a stimulus initiative during the period of heightened COVID, it should not be stopped or that it should be continued with. The education sector is facing a number of huge challenges. Incidents of violence, as you said, G.S. Maluleke, the abuse and bullying in our schools are of great concern. The fact that teachers can now be attacked in class, in schools, and some of them even be stabbed and some of them even be killed is something that we've never heard of. But another scourge continues. The incidents of racism are greatly distressing and show that there is among some people in our country who want to reverse the gains that this democratic government has achieved. We are concerned about the apparent increase in incidents of violence, yes, against learners and teachers, often perpetrated by criminals who find their way into schools and harass and abuse learners as well as teachers. We need to work together across society to ensure that our schools are no-go areas for criminals that our schools become safe havens for our children, that our schools become the best places where teachers and our principals can work and exercise their craft of being educators. This means that our school governing bodies, our community policing forums, our communities as a whole, our various local businesses, unions, and the police need to work together to ensure that every single school in our country is a place where educators and learners feel secure and safe. 
as we work to ensure that schools are suitable places for learning we need also to equip them for the challenges and the opportunities of the fourth industrial revolution as we undertake far-reaching reforms to our telecommunications industry and increase our investment in infrastructure so that we can improve the look, the feel, and the functionality of our schools. We need to ensure that schools and other educational facilities are the first beneficiaries of our infrastructure built process as well as the improvement of our ICT. We do call on the private sector to work with us to invest in upgrading in modernizing and in the expansion of our school infrastructure to benefit all learners particularly in the underserved areas the current situation in many schools across our country is most worrying after the neglect of our schools by the previous apartheid regime I've been told that in order to improve and to upgrade and to modernize a number of schools, for instance, in a province like Limpopo, would possibly take up to 75 years. Now, we don't want to see that happening. We want the pace of the improvement of our schools to be hastened. And that is why we are working on financial instruments, financial proposals that can enable us to improve schools now as many as we possibly can in the following years and not wait for 75 years and be able still through the financial engineering that we're working on still be able to to pay on a sequential basis for the improvement because our children and indeed yourselves cannot wait for the improvement of a school in the form of either a proper ablution block, a proper staff office, a laboratory, a library, or even a hall. You cannot wait for 75 years for that to be done. So we are working on various instruments that can enable the school improvement program to be up and running as soon as possible. In a world that is becoming increasingly digital, SATU has a significant role to play in ensuring that its members are ready for new technology and the new subjects as part of our shared effort to get our learners ready for this new world. Teachers need to educate learners about the benefits, but as well as the risks associated with emerging media and technology. We understand that the teacher union collaboration that is responsible for equipping our teachers with the skills and capabilities to implement coding and robotics in schools is being well received by teachers. We commend SATU for the role it is playing in the training of 
32,000 of our teachers in this regard. That is to be commended. It isn't often that you get a union embarking on an initiative like this, but at great scale to expose up to 32,000 teachers in an effort like this. So you are to be commended, and I would like to appreciate this effort greatly. As the basic education sector, we need to work collaboratively with the Department of Higher Education, Science and Innovation to advance the fourth industrial revolution in our education system. Our higher education institutions can themselves do much more to prepare educators to teach the new subjects offered as part of the three-stream model. The education sector is critical to our country's economic growth, and we have to ensure that our educators are fully equipped with the skills, and the know-how, and the tools that they need. Another significant development is the move of the early childhood development function to the Department of Basic Education from the Department of Social Development. This means that the educational development of the child should now be continuous, it should be a process that continues from their earliest years to when they are ready and equipped to leave school. And this is where another big task arises for you. I've often spoken about this reality that we have in our country, and we saw it playing out just two, three days ago, when the MEC Panyaza Lisufi was opening up the registration in schools, where tens and tens and tens of thousands of parents were applying for their children. I counted more than 160,000 just in one province. Now every year we know that close on to one million children registered in schools for a 12-year period of education. But at the end of that 12-year period, we've often found that less than 50% of those children do finally write their 12th year exam, which is metric. I've often asked myself where the 550,000 or so young people go to. And I've addressed this with some of you during an award ceremony. And I know that the minister and the department have taken this up, but I'm saying it here for emphasis once again. 550,000 or so just disappear into the ether because only 450,000 or so write the final ex exam after the 12-year period. And I've often asked myself, where are they? And do you know where we find them today? We find them lining up to receive the 350 social relief of disaster grants.
that's where they are. They did an analysis for me and they said close on to 59% of the people who are receiving that 15, uh, 350 are people who have not passed metric. So that's where they finally are to be found. What this means is that we all have a responsibility, all have a responsibility to make sure that those young children do not drop out of school because they are school dropouts. And we therefore as a nation need to reduce that school dropout phenomenon. Because once they drop out, they end up in the unemployment ranks. For many of the people today, and there are quite a number of graduates who are not employed, but the majority of people who are unemployed are those who in the end did not find their way finishing at least 12 years of schooling. And the question therefore that arises for me is the role of the teacher. A teacher has a role as well when it comes to this. Because as a teacher, the parents hand over the child to you and say, we will stay with this child for eight hours of the day or so, and we give this child to you for 16 hours or so. And when that child misses in your class, it should be the teacher's responsibility to find out where that child has gone to. If you don't see that child for three, four, five days, that's when you then should interact with the parents and find out what is happening with that child. So your task goes beyond being just a teacher. It also is the role, your role as a social worker. Your role is to go and be like that hen when the little chick goes missing, that hand goes looking for that little chick so that the chick can come back into the warmth of the hand. We therefore need, as teachers, to be fully engaged in the lives of our children, the children that we teach. For we've been given a responsibility by the nation to bring them up, to mold them, and to make sure that they get an education. I've imposed this burden on the minister and the department and I've said we must find ways and strategies to lower this incidence of dropouts, school dropouts. And as teachers you are in the front line. The parents are also in the front line. And each time I go to do door to door, when I get into homes, I often ask about the number of children in a home, the level of education, and sometimes when I hear that a child has dropped out of school, I say, as a parent, why did you allow it? Because sometimes you hear stories like, no, the teacher did not like me, that's why I dropped out of school. Uh, sometimes you hear, no, the other children uh, were, were abusing me or bullying me. That's why I dropped out of school. These are matters that we need to deal with collectively, all of us. So I'm raising this, that our consciousness 
must be raised. If you've got a class of 34, 35, as our classes are big, you've got to know every child in your classroom. Are they bigger than that? Okay. They are much bigger than that, but your task is also to know every child in your class. A teacher must know every child they teach, and if they disappear from the classroom, we must therefore follow up, which would also include going to visit the child at their home. If we are to also address another important task that you have, that is to improve reading and numeracy. We need to invest more in our children's formative years. And as a revolutionary union, SATU must lead in ensuring that our education system itself transforms the economy and improves the social conditions of our learners. That is where the three-stream model adds great value. While our education system must produce doctors, lawyers, scientists, policemen and women, engineers, and teachers, it must also be a system that produces carpenters, welders, boiler makers, mechanics, and plumbers. It must produce IT specialists, coders, programmers, as well as technicians. It must produce entrepreneurs and innovators. These are the skills any growing economy needs. They are the skills that support our quest for reindustrialization. And we call on Satu to help raise awareness about the opportunities provided by vocational training. We must encourage our learners to acquire these skills to pursue paths of entrepreneurship, of self-employment, and a number of people have often said entrepreneurship needs to be taught in our schools. There should be a subject that just deals with that. Our focus should be on creating opportunities for young people to be absorbed into the labor market, not into the unemployment ranks. As we prepare to mark World Teachers Day, I once again express our nation's gratitude to members of SATU and all educators for their courage and their commitment in the face of COVID-19. Teachers took it upon themselves to ensure that learning went ahead even under the most difficult of circumstances. Yes, I realize that we have lost not one year or two years of learning, and as G.S. Maluleke was saying, it could even be five years. And teachers have been working hard alongside school management, department officials, parents, to make up the lost time. When we were under pressure to open schools, or when we put everyone under pressure to open schools during COVID, 
It was quite a heated debate, even in cabinet and across the nation. And I remember Minister Motecha being resolute that unless we opened up the schools, we would lose even more time, more time than we could have lost. And I want to applaud the courage that you displayed. It felt at times like we were launching you into a situation where a number of you would just get infected. And I'd like to use this occasion to appreciate and celebrate the dedicated teaching force that we have in this country. We commend the vital contribution teachers make to our future by nurturing, shaping the minds and the lives of our young people. Throughout this very difficult period, our teachers became symbols of resilience and have remained loyal to their calling to educate the leaders of tomorrow. We remember and pay tribute to all the teachers who fell along the wayside, who succumbed to COVID-19. In their honor, we must do everything that is possible to guarantee the safety of teachers and ensure that the teaching and learning environment remains conducive at all times. In their honor, those who fell along the wayside and passed away, may their souls rest in peace. We must celebrate the excellence and dedication of those teachers who spare absolutely nothing of themselves in the effort to build a new society underpinned by a better life for all. We owe you a great deal as the teachers of our nation. In acknowledging and celebrating these outstanding patriots who have the responsibility to shape our collective future, we are encouraging all teachers to continue and never become weary and never tire from the task that you ha are executing. We look to teachers of this country to help develop a citizenry that will be able both to grapple with the challenges and seize the opportunities presented by the various opportunities and technologies that we have. And I know that one of the challenges that you're having to deal with is the electricity or energy challenge that we are going through now. The load shedding that we are going through also impacts negatively on the work that you do. We are sad and deeply negatively affected by all this, but we would like you not to tire. We also look forward to you to continue to empower our learners in the best ways that you can with regards to values and attitudes that they should take informed decisions that advance their own lives. 
so that they can become active members of society. The future development of a nation truly lies in the hands of a good teacher as they are the provider of education and prepare students to be the future of a nation. Your role, as I repeat, is very crucial. It is a responsibility that lies on your shoulders and we are rather glad that you are executing it as well as you have. And I'd also like to pay tribute to SATU as an organization. You have succeeded to organize almost 70% of the teaching people in our country. And you've been carrying this task forward with great responsibility. I found you to be a well-organized union, a union that knows its responsibility and its place in society, and I'd like to thank you for that, and may you carry on with that. Because in the end, you are the midwives of a new breed of patriotic citizens, and as the teacher's organization, you are conscious of that, and you carry this responsibility with a great deal of dignity that we thank you for. And obviously, the other challenge that you have to face is to ensure that we rid our country as well as the sector of corruption and gender-based violence. I appreciate the stances that you have taken as a union when it comes to ch issue of abuse of children in schools, that you take a very strong position of this and that we appreciate. As with all teachers in our country, the members of SATU carry this noble responsibility. It is a responsibility that you continue to perform, as I said, with dignity, with pride and with diligence. Mr. President, I wish you the very best as you carry on with this National General Council. I know that out of this General Council will come important decisions as you grapple with the various challenges that not only face your sector or your union, but that face our country as well. As our country is facing enormous challenges, we look to SATU to make a contribution in the form of ideas, thoughts, and suggestions on how best we should address some of these challenges, including the challenge of unemployment, including the challenge of poverty and inequality. You are a center of knowledge as a union and as a sector in you resides innovative ideas, in you resides ideas that can take us forward. We, as those who are in government, do not have a monopoly on everything that is correct or the best. We rely on formations such as yours and your members that in your 
gatherings such as the National General Council. You can also discuss national issues and impart some of the thoughts and suggestions. So I look forward to receiving some of those suggestions at the union buildings with immediate effect. Thank you very much. Right, uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa in his capacity there as uh, ANC President addressing the South African uh, Democratic Teachers Union, uh, their General Council meeting, which of course is uh, currently underway. It being uh, World Teachers Day, in fact, uh, tomorrow, uh, the President's talking about the importance of teachers, telling them, uh, reminding them that they're valuable and important um, to the lives of children and particular students, and that government is working on improving schools now and not in what could be 75 years it would take to improve uh, some of our schools. He also talks about uh, the need to lower incidence of uh, dropouts and the fact that uh, up to five years of uh, learning have been lost due to uh, COVID-19 and that they're trying and they can and they can see acknowledges that the teachers are trying indeed to make up for that uh, lost time. Some of the issues they're touched on by uh, the president there at uh, the general council meeting of uh, Satu this afternoon. Let's Welcome back. And uh, that was an address uh, delivered uh, by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa on uh, October the 4th during uh, the South African Democratic Teachers Union uh, Congress. Uh, And, of course, uh, SADU is a very uh, prominent and uh, well-organized trade union in uh, the Republic of South Africa representing educators. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Motown artist Brenda Holloway uh, from uh, Los Angeles, uh, California, who signed uh, with the Detroit-based uh, Motown label in 1964. And are uh, you listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, this special edition of our program? And uh, in a couple of minutes, uh, we'll be bringing you a new briefing uh, from uh, the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. We'll be right back. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. And if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And we're going to be coming up uh, with a briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, this and, uh, thank you for joining us for this media briefing, which is coming to you from the Africa Centers for Disease Control and uh, Prevention. We bring it to you every Thursday with the aim of updating the continent and the world at large on the pandemics that might be affecting the continent advice uh, on uh, response and uh, preventive measures wherever possible, as well as the general information on the response effort by the African Union uh, through the Africa CDC, which is its um, um, technical agency. So my name is Wayne Mutabayana, and I will be your moderator for today. I see that some colleagues are still joining us, but I think that we can start and hand over to the acting director of the Africa CDC, Dr. Ahmed Ogwell, for his briefing for today. Ogwell, you, um, Dr. Ogwell, you have the floor. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, um, uh, Wayne, for uh, the introduction and good morning, good afternoon, good evening, colleagues, wherever you're joining from. Um, today, I would like to start with uh, uh, the COVID-19 uh, overview before we go to other outbreaks here uh, on the continent. So as of today, the 6th of um, October 2022, um, the following uh, is a report from all our 55 uh, member states uh, of the Africa Union that to date we have documented a total of uh, just over 12 million COVID-19 uh, cases that have been reported on the continent. And these accounts for 2% of the total cases reported globally. 
we have seen um, just over 11.4 million recoveries out of the 12 million that uh, were affected. And this is 95% of those who um, are reported to have COVID here on the continent. Unfortunately, we have documented over 255,000 deaths, and this gives us a case fatality rate for Africa of 2.1%, which accounts for 4.1% of the total number of deaths reported globally due to COVID-19. Our case fatality rate, the 2.1%, is actually higher than the global average of 1.1%, and um, as of this week, um, 41 of our countries are reporting um, a case fatality rate that is higher than the global uh, average. Two countries, Somalia and Sudan, are still reporting a case fatality rate that is higher than 5%. When we look at um, the, the analysis of the past week, and that is Epidemiological Week 39, which ran from 26th of September to the 2nd of October, and we compare it, uh, we compare it with AP Week 38, we see that a total of 5,106 new cases were reported in Africa, which gives us a 14% increase. That is one 4% increase from the previous week. The highest proportions we see are from the Southern Africa region with 39% of the new cases being reported. The Eastern Africa region um, accounts for 25% of these cases, Western 16%, and the Central and Northern regions each with 10% of the new cases. Um, the top five countries reporting the highest number of cases during this week are South Africa with 1,525, Seychelles with 783, Tunisia with 341, Ghana with 285, and Cameroon with 254. During this AP Week 39, a total of 53, that is 53 new deaths were reported here in Africa. This is a 33% increase from the previous week. When we look at the four-week trend analysis, it shows that um, the number of new cases during the last four weeks compared to the previous four weeks has increased by 1%. And these uh, this 1% increase um, affects the regions very differently, where some have gone up, when others have gone down. And the regions most affected by the increase are Eastern and Central Africa regions during this period, uh, with Eastern documenting over 2,000% increase and Central over 800% increase, while the other regions were showing significant decreases. During this four-week analysis, there has been an overall 7% average increase in the number of new deaths uh, that were reported on the continent. And the regions that have been most affected by the increase are Southern with 59% increase, Western 38%, and Eastern with 16% increase. The situation of COVID-19 vaccination on the continent as of the 3rd of October uh, 2022 is as follows. 
we have received 980 million um, COVID-19 vaccination doses, um, and these have been supplied um, across all our member states, 54 of our member states. And the number of doses that have, uh, that have been administered is 713,713, which corresponds to 73% uh, consumption rate of the supplies available here in Africa. Coverage is now standing at 22.9% of the total population being fully vaccinated and 2.8% um, coverage for booster doses. When we look at um, uh, vaccination trends, in the past four weeks, and that is the period between, 20, uh, between um, uh, the 6th of September to the 2nd of October, there has been an increase from 22.2% to 22.9% for those who are fully vaccinated. Percentages um, like this may look small, but in reality, it is almost 10 million new doses that we have um, uh, delivered to people's arms over this four-week period. So although the increase is, is uh, looking small from 22.2% to 22.9%, it represents 10 million doses that have been um, administered. When we look at uh, AP Week 39, we see that um, some countries have made significant increases in the, in the vaccination rates. Those that have increased by over 25% um, include Burundi, the Central African Republic, Chad, the DRC, Cameroon, <clears throat> Comoros, Djibouti, Madagascar, Tanzania, Libya, Malawi, Mozambique, South Africa, and Mali. These countries have seen their rates <clears throat> increase um, by at least 25% compared to the rates they had in the, in the week, in the month before. Contributing factors are to this um, decent uh, increase in the uh, population coverage for vaccination of COVID-19 include um, our Saving Lives and Livelihoods door-to-door -door campaign, which has been implemented in some countries, including Tanzania, the increased uh, efforts to engage with the community with the correct messages, as we are doing in the DRC, and mass campaigns um, in uh, the lower age groups between 12 and 17 years, as we are doing in Mozambique. This represents a significant change in the rate and pace at which we are seeing vaccinations happening here on the continent of Africa. We therefore recommend to um, our member states that we need continued advocacy from our political leaders and um, influencers so that the public can be able to take up vaccination even faster. We are also encouraging tailored risk communication and community engagement uh, activities in each and every country, in each and every part of the countries. We also need to improve the way in which we are managing our data so that the, the results of um, vaccination becomes, more ava becomes available faster than they are uh, right now. We also need to ensure 
that we are expanding the door-to-door campaign, the mass vaccination in places where the members of the public are uh, members of the public are congregating, and we need to specifically target the youth as we are doing through our Bingwa initiative. When we look at the SLL implementation, we see that um, in the coming weeks, implementation is going to begin in four additional countries, and that is Uganda, Comoros, Djibouti, and Malawi. And this will join the countries that are already implementing um, uh, mass vaccination campaigns, which include Ethiopia, Kenya, Nigeria, Rwanda, Namibia, and Lesotho. And of course, Zambia and the DRC and Tanzania are joined um, only last week. So the number of countries that um, are implementing uh, the Saving Lives and Livelihoods Initiative is, is growing, and we are seeing um, from the data we are gathering from the uh, from the ground that um, uh, in all these uh, countries, uh, vaccination rates are also uh, going up. Let's now move to the other um, public health uh, threat that we are seeing on the continent. And first is um, the good news that from Tanzania, the cholera outbreak that we had there is now officially closed as a public health event because the active transmission has been successfully brought under control. The ongoing outbreaks that we are dealing with on the continent, apart from COVID-19, are 11 in number. And today we will discuss um, only four of them as they are significantly more um, uh, serious than the others. Um, of the four that we're going to discuss today are, is Ebola in Uganda, uh, monkeypox in multiple countries, Rift Valley fever in Mauritania, and cholera uh, that is also in multiple countries. But do bear in mind that um, there is still flooding in the Sudan, which is causing a lot of public health risks. There's still influenza, H1N1 in Namibia. Lassa fever is still there in multiple countries across uh, uh, the continent. Measles is still there in uh, uh, multiple countries across the continent as well. Yellow fever in Cameroon. Hepatitis E in South Sudan, and Crimea and Congo hemorrhagic fever in Uganda. We will not discuss those ones in detail, but it is to um, provide you with information that indeed there are quite a number of other public health events that are significant and are continuing uh, around the continent. So we will start with um, Ebola. And since the last briefing that we had a week ago, 19 new confirmed cases and 15 new deaths due to um, Ebola virus disease have been reported from five districts in Uganda. And this is a 20% decrease in the number of new confirmed cases compared to the last briefing. Cumulatively, 50, 43 confirmed cases with 30 deaths giving us a 69.8% case fatality rate, have been reported from the five districts. And of the total number of cases, 15%, and that is 10 in number, are actually health workers. And we have unfortunately lost 
for health workers during this current outbreak. The good news is that we now have seven recoveries um, from this uh, outbreak who have now been reintegrated back into um, their uh, communities. In addition to this number of um, uh, confirmed probable cases and those that have passed away, we have 867 active contacts that have been listed and at least 78% of them are currently being monitored. This is a very important um, step because compared to the last briefing, we have we are now seeing a situation where monitoring has um, almost doubled uh, compared to last time when we were monitoring just around 48 or so percent. So of the contacts that have been listed, um, 78 percent are being actively monitored uh, during um, the period um, for um, incubation to ensure that uh, they do not uh, carry the virus and are integrated back into the community. So um, the Ministry of Health in Uganda continues um, to uh, ensure that members of the public are provided the right information. Governance mechanisms have been put in place, including district task, force, uh, task forces that meet regularly to engage with members of the public. Um, a response plan has been prepared. Partners have been mobilized to support the country. Um, and indeed, uh, new emergency treatment units have been established um, in different parts of the five districts that are affected. We are supporting, as Africa CDC, supporting the Ministry of Health in um, uh, providing uh, all this very important um, engagement to the communities. Uh, and we are also working with the ministry to provide more test kits, uh, train more laboratory uh, scientists, uh, open up more platforms for uh, testing, uh, so that we can have shorter turnaround times um, in the affected uh, areas. Next week, on the 12th of October, um, Africa CDC, in partnership with the World Health Organization Regional Office for Africa, um, and hosted by the government of uh, Uganda, uh, we are holding a high-level ministerial emergency meeting um, to discuss cross-border preparedness and response for fast-moving outbreaks like uh, uh, the Ebola that we are seeing in the country. All the um, neighbors of Uganda, that's the DRC, South Sudan, Kenya, Rwanda, and Tanzania, have been uh, in, at ministerial level have been invited to this meeting next week on uh, Wednesday. And indeed, for purposes of sharing, uh, experiences. We've also invited Sierra Leone, Liberia, uh, and Guinea at ministerial level to participate in this one-day um, meeting so that we can have alignment uh, within uh, the region for cross-border uh, activities. Um, and um, uh, some of the challenges that we are facing still um, is that uh, this is the Sudan strain of, uh, uh, Ebola, of uh, Ebola the virus. And therefore, we don't have rapid test kits yet, and we also do not have a vaccine uh, that has achieved um, um, use emergency use authorization, and therefore, we cannot use that particular tool in our response mechanisms. We are therefore very 
uh, uh, busy supporting um, infection prevention and control measures. Uh, we are providing support for the isolation of cases that are suspected or confirmed. Um, we are providing support um, to uh, ensure that members of the public are being given the right information uh, across uh, the country. Indeed, we are providing support to all the, six, the five neighbors uh, to ensure that their systems, um, not only at the border lines, but even internally within the country, have a higher index of suspicion uh, so that they are more prepared um, uh, than before. The second um, is monkeypox, the multi-country monkeypox outbreak that um, uh, sees um, its footprint outside of the African continent. Since the last brief that we had on the continent of Africa, eight new confirmed cases and 238 suspected cases with 17 new deaths as a result of monkeypox have been documented. And this gives us a case fatality rate of 6.9%. The countries reporting these new uh, cases and new uh, deaths include the, the, the DRC, Ghana, and Liberia. This represents a 3% decrease in the number of new cases of monkeypox that we are seeing on the continent, with the DRC reporting um, 238 uh, suspected cases, and also we have documented 17 new deaths in the DRC, giving us a case fatality rate of 7.1%. In Ghana, seven confirmed cases, no new deaths. In Liberia, one confirmed case, again, no new deaths. Cumulatively, from the beginning of the year, we have documented 5,813 uh, cases, including 703 that have been confirmed, uh, while 5,110 are suspected. 155 deaths, giving us a 2.6% case fatality rate across 12 of our member states here in Africa. As Africa CDC, we continue to work with the affected member states, particularly in strengthening surveillance and care of um, uh, those who are affected. Unfortunately, to date, we have not yet secured um, any doses of um, uh, vaccines, uh, but we continue to work with and negotiate uh, with um, those who have uh, these vaccines. The third um, public health event of, which is significant is Rift Valley fever in Mauritania. Since the last brief, eight new confirmed cases and 35 suspected cases with five new deaths have been reported in Mauritania, giving a case fatality rate of 15% for Rift Valley fever. This is a 19.19% increase in the number of new cases compared to the last briefing. Cumulatively, from the beginning of this particular outbreak in Mauritania, we have seen 32 confirmed cases 113 uh, suspected cases, 17 deaths, giving us a case fatality rate of 12% across um, uh, Mauritania as a country. The Ministry of Health there has, enha has enhanced their surveillance uh, mechanisms. They are doing active contact tracing and community sensitization in the areas that have been affected.
As Africa CDC, we continue to provide them with the technical support um, as they as they need it. The fourth and last one that we will discuss today is a multi-country cholera outbreak. Since the last briefing, 462 new confirmed cases and 3,023 suspected cases with 78 new deaths have been reported, giving us a case fatality rate of 2.6%. And these have been reported from Cameroon, Malawi, Nigeria, and Somalia. These numbers represent a 9.6% decrease in the number of new confirmed cases. Cameroon has reported 56 cases uh, confirmed, while 210 are suspected. Also, seven new deaths in Cameroon, giving us a case fatality rate of 1.5%. Malawi has reported 405 new confirmed cases and eight deaths, giving us a case fatality rate of 1.9% in Malawi. Nigeria, with 1,841 new suspected cases and 58 new deaths, gives us a case fatality rate of 3.2%, while Somalia has reported 511 new cases, including one confirmed, 510 suspected, and five new deaths, giving us uh, just about 1% case fatality rate. Cumulatively, from the beginning of uh, this year, we have documented for uh, cholera 45,321 cases, including 6,310 that are confirmed and 39,011 that are suspected, with 726 deaths, giving us a cumulative case fatality rate of 1.6% across 14 member states of the African Union. We continue to work with all the countries that have been affected uh, by this particular outbreak. Now to other announcements that um, uh, have occurred over the last um, uh, two weeks or so. You will recall that um, we were in the UN General Assembly um, uh, two weeks ago, and uh, during that time, um, we held three very successful events. Um, the update today is that uh, two documents have now been released on our website. That is the call to action on the new public health order by our heads of state and government and a communique on reimagining health workforce development on the, for Africa's security, again, by our heads of state and government. Essentially, these two side events um, were for our uh, heads of states, uh, to call upon um, our own governments, multilateral institutions, uh, philanthropies in the private sector, including civil society, uh, to support the full implementation of um, the new public health order so as to ensure that our health security here on the continent is part of the global health security uh, architecture. So these two documents are now available on our website uh, for your consideration. During um, the UNGA week as well, we signed two MOUs. The first one was with Smart Africa. And with Smart Africa, we are going to strengthen and expand digitization of Africa CDC's work. Our ambition is that um, um, during um, uh, outbreaks, we are able to receive the information 
uh, as quickly as possible, and we want to digitize the way in which the information is transmitted from the community to the national level and eventually to Africa CDC. This will improve our response time and ensure that we can be able to arrest any outbreak before uh, it becomes a community problem. So that was the MOU we've signed with Smart Africa. The second MOU we signed was with PATH International, and uh, this one is uh, to expand uh, the work we are doing with them on health security, particularly capacity building, uh, particularly for local manufacturing uh, of uh, health products. And uh, with PATH, we have started uh, implementation of this uh, particular uh, MOU. During the UN General Assembly, I also had the honor of uh, uh, speaking at the COVID-19 Global Action Plan Forum of Foreign Affairs Ministers from across the world, where I shared with them our lessons uh, learned during Ebola, during COVID, during monkeypox outbreaks and other similar outbreaks. And um, I urged them uh, to realize that, the vac- that um, uh, for us, the pandemic is still very real on the continent because of low vaccination rates. And I also emphasize that regional institutions like Africa CDC are really the key to us to successful interventions, uh, not just here on the continent of Africa, but elsewhere as well. So these regional institutions must be part of the global health security agenda. This past week, um, I also welcomed the CEO of Gavi, Seth Beckley, and we were discussing here how do we strengthen our existing cooperation, particularly uh, in vaccine delivery um, and um, also in um, vaccine administration uh, to the public. We've also agreed on a way forward on uh, local manufacturing and uh, uh, making sure that there is a market for, uh, vac- uh, for all the health products, particularly vaccines that are going to be manufactured here on the continent of Africa. Last week on the 29th of September, Her Honor, the Vice President of uh, the Republic of Zambia, launched the the Africa Continental Framework on Mortality Surveillance, um, and we had the honor of hosting her in Lusaka. And this particular document is a consensus, it's a consensus technical guidance document, which will be the tool that our member states here in Africa will be using to improve data collection and sharing um, on causes of death in each and every country. When we know what is causing death in each and every country, then we are able to plan and respond faster and more precisely because we have that information. So that particular um, uh, uh, document, the framework has been launched and now is going to be used by uh, the countries uh, on the continent. Um, Wayne, I think this is what we had for today and we are happy to receive any questions uh, from other journalists, but allow me to repeat that on the 12th of October next week, we are in Entebbe in Uganda for that high-level ministerial emergency meeting on cross-border surveillance, preparedness, and response uh, to not just Ebola, but any other fast-moving uh, outbreak. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, uh, Ahmed. And um, it's a very uh, good point for us uh, to segue perhaps to introduce uh, Dr. Merawi, who is the head of emergency preparedness and response at the Africa CDC. We're going to give him just about two minutes in case there is any additional information that he has with regards to that uh, Ebola outbreak. But while he's uh, giving us his two minutes, uh, I just want to give out the WhatsApp number for your questions. It remains the plus 251-9455-02310. We also welcome uh, questions on Zoom, either live or through the question and answer section. For now, let me just uh, say good morning to Dr. Merawi, and you have your two minutes just for updates on the Ebola outbreak. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Madam. Uh, good afternoon, uh, colleagues. Uh, it has been uh, said very well, and I just want to give some uh, brief Africa CDC plan for the next uh, one or two weeks' time that we are going to support the uh, government of Uganda and all other neighboring countries in the region, in addition to the high-level ministerial meeting. This uh, next week, we will start to give uh, surveillance and conduct tracing training to all affected districts in Uganda and support alert management system set up in that country because the number of alert reports are coming from uh, members of the community that need to be really well managed. And we also give risk communication community engagement training and uh, plan to have a regional uh, laboratory specialists with RTPCR technique, uh, diagnostic testing uh, training uh, to be given for the whole of uh, the region. Uh, and in DRC, an Institute of National, uh, National uh, Biomedical Research Institute in the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. And we also we are expecting our cargo of testicles to come to arrive early next week to support the neighboring countries as well as Uganda. And we have a continuous engagement with the regions. We are currently uh, uh, identified major gaps and challenges in a number of member states that need to be filled. We are currently closely working with our partners to support those, those, those countries. I think uh, one good point that I just want to flag in here is uh, yesterday around 139 contacts have been uh, uh, graduated uh, from follow-up because they have already finished from the day of. This is a really good news that uh, the government of Uganda is accomplishing the past one. Thank you very much. Thank you very much uh, for that update, uh, Dr. Nerawi. Now we have come to the question and answer section, and uh, the first question that we have today is coming from Judith Akolo, who is working with the Kenya Broadcasting Corporation. And she says to Dr. Ogwell, considering the drop in COVID-19 infections in Kenya and the rise in the numbers of infections in neighboring Somalia, should Kenya be worried about this state of affairs? And what must the government of Kenya do to ensure that the successes that have been registered in dealing with COVID-19 are not rolled back on account of the rise in infections in Somalia? Um, no, thank you, Judith, um, for that question. Um, COVID anywhere is a risk everywhere. So, uh, so long as numbers are still 
um, rising in any part of the world, and particularly neighboring countries, of course, um, the risk is still there. What each country needs to do, um, uh, there are three major things. One is surveillance. We need to have our surveillance systems to be awake and functioning 24-7 across each and every country, particularly at border points. In this way, any um, case is detected rapidly and then response is instituted. This is the first thing, surveillance. The second is we must have um, within each and every country the capacity for managing a case of whether it is COVID or any other um, uh, disease. That capacity to manage a case um, safely must be in place. So isolation centers, uh, quarantine centers, uh, well-trained staff with the right tools uh, to do the work, um, uh, good um, uh, medication and therapeutics. Um, uh, very important that we have the system in place to manage a case in, uh, that may require uh, to be uh, um, uh, managed within a facility. The third very important thing is vaccination. We know the tool works. And therefore, we need to head toward the 70%, which is the target. And my advice to all our member states is when the uh, transmission is low, this is the time for us to increase our rates of uh, uh, vaccination so that if at all any other wave comes, it finds most of the population to be well protected and we end up with a few, if any, a serious uh, illness uh, situation. So um, any case of COVID, Judith, anywhere is a risk. We need to prepare within each and every uh, country uh, so that any case that comes, we can pick it up quickly. And uh, if necessary, we then manage uh, that case in a safe way to avoid uh, further transmission into the community. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, uh, Ahmed. We have uh, Paul Adepoju who has his hand up. Paul, please go ahead with your question. Hello, Paul. All right, perhaps let me proceed with another question that's coming in from Judith. And uh, Judith says, um, yesterday, meaning Wednesday, the Minister of Health for Uganda announced the death of another medic in Fort Portal in Uganda. Could this be a sign that the Ebola outbreak in Uganda could get out of hand? Um, thank you, Judith. And um, I will also ask Merawi to give us a little bit of detail around um, the issue with the health workers um, uh, in Uganda. Uh, two things that I would like to say here is that um, um, the health workers, the exposure was at the beginning of uh, this uh, particular outbreak when we did not know what we were dealing with. And um, we must really applaud our health workers for being at their point of work. They do what they're supposed to do, despite these risks that um, uh, they are exposed to. Um, health workers... Um, passing away as a result of exposure to uh, Ebola virus disease does not mean that um, uh, the outbreak is getting out of hand. 
what it does mean, however, is that uh, the case fatality rate for uh, uh, this particular virus is still very high because we don't have definitive treatment for it. And therefore, our health workers must be provided with the right tools uh, to be able to protect themselves effectively when they are looking after um, either suspected or confirmed uh, cases. Uh, we uh, send out our deep condolences and uh, uh, wish um, the families um, really peace during this time. Um, and we also uh, continue to support uh, the government of Uganda to ensure that the health workers are being given the right uh, protection as they continue to work. But I would like Merawi to give us a little bit more detail with the situation with health workers, how many are exposed, um, and uh, what we are doing towards um, addressing uh, uh, the protection of the health workers. Merawi? Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ahmed. Thank you, Judith, for the, that uh, valuable question. I think uh, just to give you some uh, context, at the beginning of any such outbreak, it is uh, very common to, to, to face because the Ebola sign symptom is like any other acute febrile illness, like the malaria, meningitis, and so on. So because of that, uh, health, uh, health workers are usually exposed until we sort uh, that out and, and uh, catch it and diagnose it very well. Welcome back. And uh, that was a briefing, excerpts from a briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. If you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is uh, go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the uh, Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go uh, to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of uh, jazz trumpeter Kenny Durham um, from the album entitled Quiet Kenny. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.